The UN called hate speech a threat to global stability and peace. But what even is hate speech and why does it matter? Welcome to Hate Speech Around the World. My name is Sandia Fuchs and I study hate crimes and social responses to hate crime legislation in India. And I will be your host for the next five weeks, where we explore cultural challenges, political debates and legal regulations around hate speech. Over the next five weeks, I will bring together experts across law and the social sciences who work on hate speech all over the world. We will explore what types of hate speech there are, what role hate speech plays in contemporary politics how hate speech shapes our emotional reaction, how different countries regulate hate speech, and what challenges face hate speech regulation in the age of social media. Today, we are here with Katerina Strani to talk about the relationship between language and power and the complex world of covert hate speech. Hello, welcome. Hello. For our listeners, could you tell us what you do, where you work, and what your disciplinary background is? I work at the Department of Languages and Intercultural Studies at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. I'm also leading the migration theme at our Intercultural Research Centre. So my, my background is in languages and politics. And I've been always fascinated by the, the, the nexus, if you like, the, the, the link between languages and politics. And my current research is in the field of cultural studies, specifically identity and migration, intercultural dialogue, and also hate speech. Great. <laughs> we like we like to hear hate speech on this podcast. Not yeah. in life. We don't like to hear it in life. So if you had to tell our listeners a little bit about sort of the main themes of your work, particularly in relation to questions of hostile speech and hate speech, could you tell us a little bit about that? I've led various projects on digital inclusion, on linguistic isolation, on digital tools for migrants and newly, arri newly arrived migrants and, and refugees. And I've also done some work on covert hate speech, which is the, the, the topic of, of the podcast. And I think it's much more your interest as well. So this has been the thematic, the thematic focus, more the interplay between language culture, but also how this is all influenced by migration. Because Societies today are increasingly reshaped by, by migration and everything that this brings. So can you tell us just maybe a little bit more about your regional focus as well? So I'm Greek. It's, I usually start with this to say I'm Greek. Um, it's, <laughs> it's what defines me I think, um, um, in, in, in a lot of the things we do. But um, so ancient Greek, Greek philosopher Plato said that humans are political animals. And I really think that I uh, absolutely agree. There's politics in everything we do. And unfortunately, most people would say, oh, I don't do politics, or I'm not interested in politics, because they associate politics with politicians or with governments. And in our discussion on hate speech, I think politics will come back to it, uh, power, communities, all this. And, and all this has shaped my, my research and my interests. That's a that's a really nice starting point, because I think one of the things that we're seeing throughout this podcast is there's a lot of different definitions around hate speech and a lot of different ideas of how how it should be defined in relation to social and political questions. You said you look specifically at covert hate speech. So how would you define the idea of hate speech? specifically also in relation to politics, like what is political about it? And then 
on what is covert hate speech specifically in that context? Yeah, sure. I think the term hate speech is a little bit unfortunate because it implies that there is hate there in one way or another, either in the sense of intent or in the sense of a sentiment. So there's a sentiment there that is meant to be hateful. And when we look at at least what is called hate speech in practice, that's not always necessarily the case. And hate speech is also a crime in many countries. So it is it is something that's punishable by law. And the reason I wanted to look at covert types of hateful speech, if you like, or hate producing speech, is the fact that um, it's more nuanced and it's, there's, there are gray areas. Now, there's no, you asked for a definition. I'm going to be very academic about this and say there's no universal definition. But <laughs> actually, I'm not dodging the question. It's true that there's no universal definition. However, I think what oh sorry the un has a definition and it's a very long one it it has to do with any kind of communication that attacks or uses pejorative or discriminatory language however the important thing about the research and the practice when it comes to hate speech is the fact that it that it has the potential of inciting violence it divides, it it creates them and us, it polarizes, and this potentially leads to extremism and and and, and various other sort of phenomena that are that are punishable by law, but are also unethical. You know, some of them may escape law, but it's also unethical or it's uncivil. So there, there are many other terms that, that describe that. So some scholars and indeed some activists who are against hate don't like the term hate speech because it's quite, you know, because it implies that there is hate. And they use, for example, dangerous speech. Susan Banesh has a has a, has a project called the Dangerous Speech Project. Others use the term inflammatory speech. Others say hateful speech, um, extreme speech to, de- to denote extremism. And they're doing this to cover all the, the nuances of what, what potentially may happen or what, what this kind of speech may create. And as I said earlier, I'm more interested in covert forms because they can be more effective in producing hate than uh, something that is explicit. So if somebody uses a racist term, for example, or an explicitly hateful term, then it's obvious that it's hateful, then it's obvious that this person is being extreme. So they can be easily told that this is the case and then that's it. The conversation is over. You are racist or you are homophobe or you are whatever. But if it's done in a covert way that is packaged in a milder form, that it is packaged as common sense, I'm using it in quotation marks, and that some of the strategies that are quite well known, then then this is more effective because nobody wants to be racist or homophobe or hateful. Uh, they may think that, oh, well, OK, this is what everyone thinks. And yeah, OK, this makes sense. And then they will adopt it. So it's much covert forms of hate speech, unfortunately, are much more effective in producing hate than overt forms. I mean, first of all, I really like the idea that at the core of hate speech is this idea of othering, because there is a ton of different definitions in the social sciences, extreme, dangerous. But I think the one thing that ties together all kinds of forms that is the idea that there's a them and us kind of creation through that speech where like certain communities or certain individuals um, are essentialized and pitted against each other. So I think that's actually a very helpful 
thing to look out for. That's very much at the beating heart of it. When we're talking about covert forms, I think maybe maybe it'd be helpful to also have some examples. So if, if I think about my own fieldwork in India, you know, depending on the community, you have your own your have your own little buffet of of covert forms of hate speech. So for example, you have the, the obvious dog whistles that are happening a lot in relation mm. to to Muslim communities, where certain kind of radical Hindu politicians will find round ways of describing them. So maybe from your work, what are some of the examples of covert hate speech that you've come across that were interesting to you? Okay, so you mentioned dog whistling, and that's a that's an excellent example. And if you like, that is becoming even even more prevalent. But there's also other strategies. I can give you an example of strategies uh, rather than specific mm-hmm. examples of hate or or of anything that may produce that may produce hate. So victimization, for example, or threat is a classic strategy that we have found in the research that we've done. So the idea that a specific group is a threat to the other groups and that we are all victims. We can take the groups that you mentioned. Uh, so you can be, it can be an ethnic group, it can be a religious group. And there's the idea that the majority, and this there's usually a majority-minority um, dynamic there, yeah? So the idea that the majority is in some way threatened by a minority is a classic strategy that we see more and more. Um, because the minority is overtaking us, because the minority is, uh, I don't know, not adapting to our rules, not adapting to our societies, because the minority is allegedly doing X, Y, Z. We also saw that in the recent example with COVID and vaccinations. So we had polarization here between those who were pro-vaccinations or pro-restrictions and those who were hesitant uh, for the vaccine or the were anti-restrictions. So there was a victimization and a threat there. One was threatened by the other and it worked both ways. Now that's a classic strategy, the construction of a threat and victimhood, if you like. Then we also have racialization and you've you've given the example of Islamophobia where a particular community is, is, is racialized. Racialization also happens, also takes place with Eastern European groups in general, and there's many terms for that as well. It's it's been called white on white racism or xeno racism and 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 other similar terms. But it's definitely a phenomenon, but also a strategy to to other another group to racialize them to say that they are different in this way. And what is important about othering is not the the us and about the us and them. It's not just a division uh, like two football teams, but it's the fact that the us is always better than the them. So it's not just the division, it's the fact that the other side are being denigrated and are being portrayed as being this extremely inferior, but also threatening. So they're not just inferior, they're also threatening us. So we need to fight against them. That's the that's the strategy. We also see what I think is quite quite interesting to see is that higher hierarchy of, of, of otherness so selective racism, where we see deserving and undeserving migrants. So when it comes to this covert strategies, you can't be shown to be racist, for example, or discriminatory if you just do it against or if you just do so against specific specific groups. So this selective racism is something that is quite prevalent. And of course, it is also racism. And of course, it is it is a strategy that is being used. So there's a pecking order, if you like. Of, of, of migrants that we see. Some of them are deserving and good and hardworking and others are not. They're scroungers. They are whatever. Um, 
whatever we whatever label you know is ascribed to them and then we also have resorting to another strategy would be resorting to pre-established sort of tried and tested stereotypes so something that has evolved into common sense and I don't want to reproduce hateful speech here for this podcast, so I'll, I'm just going to use my own group as an example and be safe. So <laughs> I can just I can just say, you know, Greeks, for example, what's a stereotype for them that is that 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 has been quite common? I don't know the stereotype that Greeks are I don't know lazy. If you use a stereotype that is sort of tried and tested and has become normalized, you can use it and perpetuate it. And then you can compare others to that same stereotype. And then it goes on like a chain reaction. And this is used quite a lot. So I don't know, for example, we have so many Greeks here. And that, that's another example. There are so many Greeks here. This phrase, mm. if you take it as it is, and it's descriptive meaning, it doesn't mean anything. It's not necessarily hateful. Yes, there are many Greeks here. Um, but the used in a particular context and with particular intent, then 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 it is divisive and then it is hateful and then it is dangerous if you don't want to use the hateful term that that's really interesting i think with the stereotyping because what happens a lot of the time and you see this kind of in everyday social discourse is that stereotypes can also become almost a shortcut to othering in a sort of denigrating way where then particular stereotypes there's a lot implied in them right there's a lot of information implied in these stereotypes so for example if in india one of the stereotypes about muslims that gets banded around is that they they're all trying to have lots of children and the the social narrative around that is they try to have lots of children so they can then basically breed and overtake the hindu population and become the majority and overtake the country but it's become such a stereotype that nobody really needs to to spell that whole narrative out anymore and people can just say oh yeah muslims muslims have a lot of children and everybody kind of it becomes a social consensus for understanding where everybody knows what is implicit like the scary idea that's implicit in that statement without the person who is speaking actually having to say all of it I mean, absolutely. There's so many layers to what you've just said. So the example you gave is a perfect example of what is sometimes called common sense discourse. I think it was Norman Fairclough who first talked about common sense discourse. The fact that if you repeat something again and again, it becomes ingrained in society to, to such an extent that people are, people are not questioning, questioning it and um, accepting it in a non-critical manner, then it becomes common sense. Nothing is common sense if you think about it. Um, so, um, and this it, such such Islamophobic um, sort of attitudes are part of common sense discourse. And if we understand the mechanisms and the strategies behind discourse becoming common sense, then we can do something about them. But in the example you you've just gave as well, you mentioned the term breed. So animals breed, yeah. Mm. Humans reproduce. And again, that's at the, level, at the level of discourse and language. It would not be difficult to prove that such statements or such attitudes are hateful and derogatory because there's an animalization happening there and comparing people to animals, which is which is hateful in itself. And also it's a punishable crime. It's a crime to do that in, in some legislation. I'm not familiar with the legislation uh, in India, so perhaps you can tell me a little bit more about that. So. So that's one thing. And then we have the stereotypes, as you say, and 
stereotypes are dangerous for very for various reasons, but the strategies of stereotyping in the sense of the common sense are particularly dangerous because once something is established as common sense, it's very, very difficult then to, to go back from it. Uh, unfortunately, social media and the online environment was really instrumental in that uh, because of the shortness of the messages, because of the unlimited, because of various things that are that are characteristic of social media discourse, and also because of echo chambers and algorithms and social homophilies, then people think, well, well, you know, you have the illusion of universality. Oh, but everyone thinks that because your little echo chamber thinks it on social media. And then it's very, very difficult to get back from this and, and, and convince people that, no, this is what something that just your group thinks and it's actually hateful and it's actually discriminatory. It's actually not true. I think this yeah. is actually very interesting because in a in a way, the creation of these common sense discourses is almost the flip side of another another version of hate speech or hate producing speech, which tends to be much more emotional and effective, right? So on the one hand, you have these kind of common sense discourses. On the other hand, is the way those influences create emotions in people that are things like disgust, for example, right? That mm. towards particular populations hate speech can work both ways. On the one hand, it works through kind of very visceral feeling. And on the other hand, it works almost through like, oh, but this is logical. Everybody knows this. This is a fact, you know, and it can kind of coexist on both planes at once. But the result is kind of the same, which is that hierarchy between you and another community. In, in a sense, these categories existed already. They've existed before. Othering has existed, well, since the beginning of time, probably. And the sort of classification or, or the differentiation yeah, between different groups or different types of people is something that is, to, to an extent, is a natural process. Um, so it's natural for us, for, for, for people to, 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 to categorize, to differentiate, to see someone and say, okay, so this person is different from me. That is not uncommon and that it's a natural process. But the problem is, what do we do with these categories that we create or that we perceive? How do we understand the world based based on these? Do we see them as threats? Do we see them as, you know, antagonists? Uh, do we see them as, as groups that we need to obliterate? <laughs> do we want to dominate over them? You know, all this. What's important about the othering process is the fact that the intent is always to prevail over another group. And um, that can never be a healthy thing. So actually, let's talk a little bit about legal frameworks around all of mm -hmm. this. One of the things that is going on in India right now is a debate about whether or not hate speech is really a term that should only be applied to, to discourses or words or expressions that are directed against a minority group or historically marginalized groups by a more powerful group. So if you look at the uh, judgments being made around hate speech by the Supreme Court, there is some human rights advocates who think that the problem in a lot of those court arguments is that the judges are positioning, for example, Hindus and Muslims as just two communities who are on the same level. We're like, oh, you know, Hindus can commit hate speech against Muslims and vice versa, whereas there's there is a community of um, human rights advocates who are saying, actually, no, because you're you're kind of arguing the power 
component out of it, actually. It can really only be hate speech if somebody who already has power, like a majority group, says something derogatory against a minority group, because that can actually have an effect, like an effect on, on that minority group in terms of access, in terms of violence. Whereas the other way around, a minority group saying something hostile against a very powerful group very likely is not going to have that same social, political, or like viscerally physical violence effect. But this is a quite a contested issue. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on is it hate speech, whichever way it goes, or should it only be classified as hate speech if there is that power differential, if it flows from the top of the social hierarchy to the bottom? So that is an interesting question. But the idea of the majority-minority dimension or the majority-minority dynamic is one that is that is recurring, if you like, in um, in research about hate speech. So if you look at hate or othering as a process of the majority creating the us and them and majority the majority using pejorative or discriminatory language against a group based on certain characteristics, then it's unlikely that a minority would do it. If you take the UN definition, for example, the UN definition mm -hmm. says that if the discriminatory language is based on, or the pejorative language is based on specific characteristics, so ethnicity, religion, nationality, race, color, gender, and all this, then by definition, you can't have a minority being hateful against the majority. Now, obviously, as we saw earlier, there are there are nuances to this. For example, if someone comes and says, let's kill all white people, that is hate speech. And, yeah. <laughs> it, it, and it doesn't really matter that perhaps a minority, you know, says it against a, minor, a majority. So it's it's very difficult to have a rule that says only um, a majority can be hateful against a minority. But I think from the examples we see around us and from what we see what's happening in society and politics and societies that are polarized and in any polarization that exists, it is more often than not the majority that is the culprit <laughs> or majority groups that are the culprits and it's minorities that are being victimized. Even though the victimization strategy is coming from, from, from the majority. So the majority might say, um, for example, oh, look at us. A, a very common trope is white majorities saying, we're going to be overcome by all these minorities and soon we will be a minority in our own country. So uh, the victimization trope again, uh, or the threat trope. So I think in practice, what we see is that it's more likely that a majority is doing that because the majority has the power. So it is... It is the powerful group that creates these categories and that also creates these these divisions. It's less likely for minority groups to create divisions to such an extent that that would lead to hate. That's what I would say with a big caveat because I'm not a legal expert. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't think yeah. I don't think this is only a legal question. I think this is a, a social question that is being debated in in legal. Um, circles as well. But I think it is ultimately a more complex social question, not just one of legal definitions. Um, and yes, it does and what kind we of... need to, sorry, if I can, if I can just come in, what we really need to be careful of, though, when we when we discuss this is, if we start saying that, well, hate can happen both ways, then we would be perpetuating the victimization trope. So 
if, for example, and I'm using a white majority here as the sort of more more classic example of a majority, yeah, uh, in Western societies. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about other societies here because it's the one I'm most familiar with. So let's say in Western societies, white majorities, if they start saying, well, actually, hate can happen both ways, then it does perpetuate the victimization narrative and the fact that, well, now we're being victimized or we're being hated or we be or it's the minorities that are being racist against us, which is another trope that is being used as part of victimization. So we need to be very careful, uh, I think, with this because it 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 um it, it would have exactly the opposite result of what we want, and what we want is you know a world with harmonious relations where different groups can live yeah can live together without hate. And when we say hate, that's something I think that was missed earlier. And again, it's the nuance. Someone can be pejorative or uncivil or, or rude to someone else without necessarily being hateful in the sense that we are discussing it today. So if someone calls me an idiot or if someone calls me ugly or or anything like that or incompetent or whatever, yeah, okay, it's it's rude. I'm not going to be happy, but it's not hate speech. It's not punishable mm. under the uh, uh, under these, and it's not attacking any characteristics like the ones we talked about before so yeah there's a difference there no there's definitely a, a difference and i think it also goes back to in in debates around hate crimes more generally one of the things that comes up repeatedly is this idea that that hate is often a response to to historically powerful groups fear of having certain advantages taken away or the, the victimization narrative you you talk about comes from oh what what is being taken away from us and it it's a response to quote unquote keep people in their place as well and so that's more than just oh i'm offending you that's i am saying something to you or i'm using language to make sure that you don't try to angle for a different social position or angle to to reduce my space and take up more space in a society that isn't advantageous you know it's not always that conscious obviously a lot of the time it's just a reaction to thinking like no living a privileged life and feeling that this is what you're used to and this is what you're entitled to and you've never known any different so it feels unjust or something but there's that element of of wanting to keep somebody else in a lower social position rather than just absolutely. wanting to offend them yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's yeah, it's perpetuating the, the the division, but not not the division as just the division, but the hierarchy. So you were saying you're not really a legal expert, but actually, this is very interesting because I think people who look at hate speech in law tend to be very focused on like, what are the legal solutions to this? Should we regulate certain forms of speech? Should we not regulate certain forms of speech? How should we regulate them? Now, if if we take you and your work as an example, who works a little bit outside of that that discourse, what do you think are some positive strategies or positive ways of potentially addressing or minimizing or reducing hate speech itself, but also the effects mm. of it? What are non-legal responses that we might engage in? So there's there's two things that I think are sustainable because the the legal route obviously it's 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 a route that is necessary and it's it's something that is embedded in our democracies, but it's it, it may act as a deterrent, but when you criminalize something, 
by default you're making it, you know, you're, you're, you're creating a sort of subculture or, or an underground, an underground part to it. So it, it doesn't take it away, but more sustainable ways of doing things is firstly, um, so I always believe knowledge is power. If we collectively, researchers, practitioners, lawyers, activists, raise awareness on the strategies and the tropes of, of hate and how hate is created and perpetuated and how divisions are and polarizations are created and perpetuated, how populism starts and how what populism is and how can we see the difference between fake news and real news and what is behind it all these mechanisms that are behind the production of these this, these types of discourses then people will be empowered and critical thinking is going to be at the forefront of, of this and uh, people will be able to make their own decisions in an informed way without being carried away by common sense discourses and by me and my what's happening at social media and all this so i think firstly exposing if you like then the the mechanisms of hate and the strategies and we we've done some work on this and that's why i've given you some examples for example you know the victimization strategy or the animalization you said or how certain works have have certain words have different meanings so if if this information is 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 given and if these mechanisms are best better known people will have the tools to decide for themselves whether to accept something or not or whether to follow something or not i think it's much better to empower people to do this and to give them the tools to do this rather than punish them for using something uh, you know for, for doing something without educating them and i'm saying educating in a non sort of snobbish way i'm saying it in a uh, in a way of yeah empowering them and giving them the tools so that's one thing and then the other thing is when they i think when people realize the damaging effects of of speech but also how it works and the mechanisms behind it they will be able to create counter narratives and counter speech and there's a lot of work already being done on counter speech and counter narratives by various scholars and activists and in and that can be much more effective because there's also another danger if you like with with the legal route despite the fact obviously that it's necessary we need laws and of course we need better laws but the thing is that if you criminalize something to to such an extent then then we may get people saying that this is affecting or this is curbing their civil liberties and this is something that we saw very much in the in the covid context where there's a difference of you know freedom of speech and just you know being hateful in some cases there's a fine line between this and the challenge for lawyers and i don't envy them and legal experts is to create laws that respect civil liberties and freedom of speech but also combat hate because with covert hate speech and with these strategies of hate they're very very difficult to prosecute but they are potentially hateful so the best thing to do is to do both so have the legal route but also develop counter narratives and counter speech so influencers who are um you know anti-hate influencers or you know counter speech influencers certainly bring them on i will sign in what's their instagram <laughs> i'll follow them you know but i think these are better because they're more sustainable in this way we're all in this together if you like if i have to use a, a, a terrible stereotype myself it's not something that people think that is coming from experts or is coming from 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 
you know, academics or legal experts who are the thought police and they're trying to, you know, curb their freedom of speech or anything like this. To what extent is the the hierarchical othering discourse and the production of such discourse is really also tied with very inextricably linked with issues of structural economic inequality or structural political inequality? Because I think it, it does seem sometimes that, although it's not exclusively that way, that hate speech and, and othering and saying, oh, the victimization and the the, oh, they're coming for us is also a response to people feeling disenfranchised or feeling dep- deprived. And is, is there some evidence on that link? And to what extent maybe do we think that without kind of economically things becoming more equitable, it might be futile to address just speech? Because I wonder about that sometimes. I think you're. Uh, I think you're absolutely right that it, uh, class, social class and uh, economics and economy plays a huge, huge role, and economic and social structures are very much at the heart. The best example I can think of now is Brexit, which also gave rise to quite a lot of hate speech before, during, and after. So, in the Brexit example, uh, a lot of the hate that was directed against EU migrants and even the the umbrella of EU migrants was quite an interesting one yeah irish people for example were not classified as eu migrants but but others were you know so there's the categories themselves were problematic to begin with but anyway or uk taxpayer was my other favorite one a uk taxpayer so an eu migrant can also be a uk taxpayer because they would pay tax here so it's you know the, these categories were um were were quite vague to begin with and obviously they were strategic they had they had a purpose so that's an example of a strategy to, to to have division. So I'm using the Brexit example because um, the, the, the socioeconomic the, the, the socioeconomic context was important. So poverty and deprivation and social class was very important in making a decision for some people in leaving the EU because they saw the state of the UK economy as being part of being part of the European Union, and they thought that you know what if if EU migrants cannot come here to work anymore, it means that there will be more jobs for us. Now, this this sort of trope or this idea, common sense, if you like, discourse, was perpetuated by those who are who are in favor of Brexit and the government, if you like, that really wanted to push this 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 agenda. I guess I mean Brexit is a beautiful sequitur into my last question: is why is it important to talk about hate speech? Right now, and I think in part we've already answered this. But I think to you, you're you're doing this work now. You're involved in multiple multiple projects across the EU. What is maybe the urgency that you feel in your work to explore these questions right now? I have to say, I was thrown off a little bit because it's the first time I think in a while that I heard the terms Brexit and beautiful in the same sentence. Um, but here we are. Uh, so. So I personally think that this is urgent and any research on hate speech is urgent because we seem to be living in increasingly polarized societies on everything. And yes, okay, I work mostly on migration and and this side, but we see it everywhere. We see it with regard to gender. We see it with regard to, you know, again, COVID vaccinations or anything, anything that affects us. So it seems that in an era of social media and social media have a lot have a major role in this have led to a 
to a, to a state where we just can't seem to be able to disagree anymore, you know, have a discussion and disagree on something and, you know, leave it at that or, or, or have a conversation or agree to disagree. And then that's it. Any disagreement has to be, it seems like that anyway, in the social media, in, in, in the online medium, that any disagreement seems to be accompanied with hate, name calling, cancelling, whatever you want to call it. We have these terms now that we didn't have them before. 20 years ago, yes, okay, the term cancelling existed, but it wasn't as widespread in everyday discourse as it is now. And it definitely and, wasn't, a, 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 you know, it wasn't as attached to people. Like you could cancel things or programs. You weren't canceling absolutely. humans. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But also I think, and I should have mentioned this before when I talked about covert hate speech. So what we see in uh, the online communication as well is the rise of non-text and non-verbal communication. So we have all these memes, images and GIFs and videos and Instagram stories that are extreme that can be extremely harmful and can be difficult to detect with automatic detection or even uh, i would guess also through the legal route because well because of their nature because of their mode so there's now another layer of hate if you like with perpetuating these images we're getting or these sort of forms of communication we have young people being exposed to various types of hate that wasn't the case before online communication. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the online medium and the potential, I'm not trying to catastrophize here. I, you know, the internet is a wonderful thing and it's how, and it's done some great things for, for life, for education, for, for, for everything. And also for people with disabilities or with additional needs, it has created a fantastic sort of platform of, of access and accessibility. So we shouldn't take that away. But when it comes to social media or online communication in general, the perceived anonymity of it and the echo chambers and the crowd mentality and the targeted hashtags and the algorithms and all this um, really need to be um, researched more thoroughly. And we need to see the potential they have for for hate. And that's why it's urgent, because it will only become even more amplified. We have chat GPT now. We have AI language models. You can train them to become hateful. You can train them to produce some horrible stuff. So we need to be prepared so that we can, so that we can utilize the online medium for what it was meant to be, for, for all the positives that it brings. And, and I really think that education and critical thinking and knowing about the strategies and all this, so if people are aware, then they can fight back. Yes, no, that's a very good point. That's a really good setup, I think, also for, you know, the larger points being made across different episodes in this podcast, which is that law is one way, criminal law is one way. There is also multiple other things that need to happen to to tackle the issue of hate speech, the issue of othering, the issue of polarization. And I think that that work is social, that work is political, that work is economic. You know, there's various layers to that. And it can't just be about regulation. So thank you very much for all of these insights. If our listeners would like to chat to you personally more or would like to get in touch with you about the work you do where could they find you 
So I would love a chat about this. So if anyone <laughs> wants to wants to go, as you can see, I'm I'm always up for a chat. <laughs> and thank you for today. I really enjoyed that. So if, if if anyone wants to have a chat or if anyone wants to take any of these topics further, then you can uh, just email me at a.strani at hw.ac.uk. Okay, um, you've all heard that, so you can start sending <laughs> <your> emails. <laughs> well, thank you very much for talking uh, with us today. And um, yeah, we hope that you do lots of more amazing work and we all get to hear and read about it in the future. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. And thanks to all of you who listened in today. And I do hope you will join us again next time for a conversation with Jordan Etherington, who will talk to us about hate speech on YouTube and the creation of negative emotions.